Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly podcast. I'm your guest host, Simon Nainby, and today I'm doing a deep dive with Jamie Taylor. We are going to go back into uh, a, a revisit on uh, on pedagogy today um, and, and have a, a proper deep dive because the last time we spoke, we, we covered some really fascinating subjects and almost felt it was a little bit superficial. We touched on lots of things and didn't get into too much depth. And I think pedagogy and learning and the, the science of learning is a, is a fascinating subject. And Jamie's the perfect person to speak to about that. So today we're going to have a revisit and um, I'm well, delighted to welcome uh, Jamie. How are you? Well, thanks for having me back again. Nice to hear that I'm the perfect person. I'm not so sure. <laughs> well, I, I think you, you've got a, a really good blend of the, the scientific and the practical application with, with the coaching you do, the coach developing you do. And with the the previous podcast was was really well received, and I spoke to a lot of coaches who found a huge amount of value in it. And I felt that, that I almost tried to cover too much in that, and I, I wanted to sort of narrow in on pedagogy and the science of learning a little bit, and and the practical application of that today, um, because I think it's going to be something that can be of huge benefit to coaches. So I think I'm going to ask quite a simple question initially that I hope will. Um, spark us off into into this area and it's something I often see um, and I'm not quite sure about whether it's true but it's something we often see spoken about so is coaching teaching so well I think it's a really good question and the way that I think about this is that in lots of ways it is and lots of ways it isn't So the way that I would see both activities is rather than being prescribed roles, that is a teacher does this and a coach does this. I see both as choosing a range of different pedagogical tools for an appropriate purpose and using what the learner needs to uh, what the learner needs to meet their needs. And I don't see the logic in saying defining teaching as X. And look, I'm sure if I look up teaching on Google now, I'll get a nice, neat definition. If I look at coaching, I'll get another nice, neat definition. And teaching will probably be something to do with classroom-based learning or acquisition of knowledge. But even then, that's a pretty limited definition of the role of a teacher. And we can all think about teachers that have a far greater impact on us on us than that. And we might find a definition of coaching about sports performance. But again, we will think about and know of coaches that have had a far greater impact on that. So is teaching coaching in lots of ways? Yes. And in lots of ways, no. Um, And I don't necessarily see the sense in drawing really sharp dividing lines between them. Because ultimately it's about it's a pedagogical relationship between one person and another person. And so uh, the reason I sort of asked that is because a huge amount of the research specifically about pedagogy and so if if we were to define that as as specifically coaching children or sorry teaching children because I found out a new word andragogy which is teaching adults and I I think that's probably a subject for another podcast but um, most of the research most of the literature and learning will be based in schools and academic type of settings so one thing I I often think about is we'll we'll get into the the specifics of the pedagogical principles and tools but before we get to that 
there is often uh, that question of can the research based in classroom because predominantly pedagogy is, is based in classrooms it's aimed at improving teaching in schools can that be transferred to the sports pitch and to coaching well I'd, I'd probably just add a little bit there because you've got the pedagogy andragogy horsagogy is a new one that you might oh. like to have a look at which is which is about independent truly independent learning now uh, pedagogy covers all of those areas so pedagogy can subsume all those different concepts. Now, andragogy, while it's often labelled as the principles of adult learning, I'm always uh, a little bit sceptical about that. Well, 18 years old, quick, you're an adult now. And I think it's more a agent, it's more a stage-based approach than it is an age-based approach because there are plenty of really effective andragogical principles that is uh, a more guided approach to learning that you can use with, well, 10 year olds. There's no reason why suddenly, right, you're now 18 years old, so we're going to you're going to be deployed with this. Um, so I think that's a little bit of a I'm a bit sceptical about that dividing line. Same, same with autogogy, the true the promotion of truly independent learning and learner driven learning. Again, I'm, I'm a little bit sceptical about those dividing lines. Okay, so um, what I'm trying to think how to how to frame this. So uh, most of the um, most of the research for pedagogy will be cognitive, you know, because it will be things that are in classrooms and most sport. I think we'll probably get into this a little bit later as well, actually, because this this is certainly an element of professional judgment decision decision making. Um, Obviously, there's two types of thinking, fast and slow, and a lot of sport is in the mind. It's very fast type thinking, whereas a lot of the traditional pedagogical principles will be. Um, let, let's take, for example, I'll jump ahead a little bit because you're probably going to talk about this. But, you know, different types of practice. We can do mass practice, random practice, variable practice. And uh, in a classroom setting, that might be uh, doing mathematics and doing some multiplication, some division and uh, and some uh, addition or whatever. And they might do that in blocks of addition subtraction multiplication division or they might mix it up etc um are there are there concerns or what are the issues around that being transferred to sport because so we'd say okay it would seem on the face of it to make sense for us to to do more random type practice for sport because it's very very few sports where it is sequential blocks of of skills so are there are there issues around that or can, can we sort of safely take that or is it is it good enough you know it's, it's it's too hard to research that in sport and it's good enough for us and we can use it for sport so there's a concept in research called transferability which is where you think about and you make a judgment based on how transferable uh, a research finding is from one context to another and ideally clearly we want to get research that there is a very little distance between where the research is done and where it is used. Now, in and Paul Kirshner, who is a world um, uh, cognitive psychologist, has pointed to the role or pointed to the probably the inappropriateness of using the term evidence based in education as a whole and instead pointed to the idea of, e of evidence informed because whether it's coaching or teaching, we're talking about something that is so 
incredibly complex with so many different competing variables, as in there are so many different things going on here. <clears throat> it's very, very difficult to draw a straight line between cause and effect and to get generalizability. Now, generalizability is different to transferability. Generalizability is this will, this can generalize across lots of different places. So going back to the idea of well, what education is there, oh, sorry, what research is there in education? And there is a fair amount that shows the robustness of different cognitively driven uh, mechanisms. I'll, I'll come back on that later. But the, the difference in education is that where we, how we measure learning or the acquisition of knowledge, the acquisition of facts and figures, if you like, stored in long-term memory is far easier to assess, um, particularly in certain subjects. Maths, for example, one plus one is always going to equal two than it is, say, in another subject like art. And that's the same in sport. It's very difficult to get an understanding of uh, intervention X leads to outcome Y because there are so many other things going on. But however, going back to the idea of, well, do these uh, do findings from educational research transfer? Well, there's a, so there's another cognitive scientist called Robert Bjork who did a number of studies looking at the types of practice forms that we're talking about and came up with the idea of desirable difficulties in learning. Essentially saying that, look, if it's easy when you learn it, it's less likely to stick. If it's hard, and as long as it's not too hard, it's more likely to stick over the long term. Now, I'm really simplifying an enormous body of research there. But that body of research was done in both education and sport. And that's where we can start thinking. Uh, we can. We, this is where the idea of blocked practice, mass practice, variable practice, random practice, these different practice forms. That's where you can start taking research from different domains and you're getting robust results. Now, some of those results are on um, incredibly simple motor skills and I'm sure lots of coaches would be looking at some of the ways in which it's tested and going well that's ridiculous things like finger tapping on computer screens but what that body of evidence suggests and is pretty clear on and I'm yet to see any evidence to the contrary that the idea of desirable difficulties in learning is really really important and robust the key bit there is how hard it is. So, for example, if I take, I mean, my, my daughter has started having a, a, a go at uh, turning up at a local tennis club. What is difficult for her at her stage compared to another learner at her at, at the same age is very, very different. And what she gets enjoyment from is built upon perceived competence and perceived improvement because she doesn't have the motor skills of a lot of the other people in her group. And so that's the real challenge for coaches then, isn't it? Particularly where if we're talking team sports like rugby, you have a lot of kids, 
probably it's probably more of a factor the younger you go because the, the older you go they'll start to self-stream in you know they'll get selected and streamed into say county teams or dpps or things like that and they'll almost be much more of the same sort of skill level but when they're younger you can have different stages of maturation and different children at different different levels of ability and, and who will need different things within that session and so i think that's that's a huge challenge for coaches is is trying to create that desirable difficulty when you can have you know say under eights you could have some kids that are very very gifted uh, with motor skills playing alongside kids that aren't so gifted and trying to make sure that it's it's difficult enough for them in the game but easy enough that others can can be part of that too yeah and look i, th- I think that happens at all levels of performance particularly in team sports i mean we could get to i don't know if you if you took a uh Premiership rugby team, variety of different skill sets across that group. For example, your tight head prop is not going to have the same handling skills as a fly half. And surprisingly enough, your fly half probably isn't going to be as competent in the contact area. So those same differences occur no matter what level of performance, particularly in rugby where there are lots of very distinct roles for people to play in a team and so if if a coach has an understanding of the the principles we're going to probably go into in a little bit i'm assuming obviously that will help them then to be able to select the right tool for the right individual or or to use those tools within their practice to try and make sure that we've got desirable difficulties at the right level for each each individual as much as we possibly can with that is that is that correct yeah i'd say so i certainly i certainly think think it helps but this is it's by no means a recipe that says this is the way to do it and you'll get the outcomes you want because it's so much more complex than just practice design as well the the other thing i sort of struggle with at the moment is um quite a few things are are presented as dichotomies so you know is it drills or is it games for example is is a big one that's been going on for quite a long time and i think one thing is that if you ever go and actually watch anyone coach and i mean like literally anyone you'll never see anyone that does either or (laughs) and i my opinion is that i've sort of seen this in loads of different things is um is it's a pendulum that swings from one end to the other and we tend to the pendulum tends to swing more to one to one extreme or the other and in order to get that pendulum swinging back to to more towards the middle people have to really overstate the opposite end of the pendulum so you know the example that was very obvious to me was in uh, strength and conditioning was olympic weightlifting so through the 80s and 90s everything became very machine based and it became this huge push to get olympic lifting in as it's the you know olympic if you're not olympic lifting you're not training properly for sport and they really pushed the pendulum to the exclusion of the the fact that where you do need machines, you do need certain aspects of of, of that kind of training, um, and and so people are, are really pushing hard on on one one aspect to try and push the needle back in the other direction, and so I think it's it, it's worth people understanding that when we talk about some of these things, they're not it's not an either or, is it? No, absolutely not. And I think in both of those cases, and clearly you're far better qualified to comment on the latter one than me but in both of those cases we're on the wrong spectrum if it's games and drills if it's olympic lifting machine-based lifting and 
and look, I, I think the problem is that there's too much of a focus on methodology. People start from what methods should I use rather than what's my intention for impact? What does the learner need? And then work their way back from that. And that, to me, is a, a massive problem across sports and across contexts of coaching at the moment. Okay, so that that leads quite neatly into the principles. So, so what what do you see as being the key? So, so this is what we sort of touched on, but didn't get into too much depth in the last podcast. And this is where I want to get into the sort of meat of it. What are the key pedagogical principles? So, if you could maybe list off the ones that you see as being quite important with a very brief explanation of the of, of them, so people could go away and look them up. Um, and then we'll try and get into some depth on some of them, the, the more important ones. So, so what sorts of, I might, you probably can't list them all, but if you could list off a few, a few of the things that you see as being important principles. Again, again this, is, this is a really difficult question because I think I, I would I'd prefer to say, look, these are the principles of, say, professional judgment, decision-making approach rather than pedagogical principles. And there's a subtle distinction there. Now, uh, in many ways, I think that across the board, the first thing that I would think about and start with is what are the needs of the learner? Where am I working from? Now, once you've got that, I think it's it, that's that to me is the central point from which you navigate. I don't work from I believe in X methodology and I will use it with uh, with every learner and work from that point to their needs. I work from the needs of the learner to my methods. And I think that that's a really important uh, and dis enormous distinction in terms of the way that coaches think and the way the practice occurs. Now, I think beyond that, there are a couple of other things that I would think about. One is that idea of how hard it is. And this is these, taken from um, some of the work of Andy Abraham, Dave Collins, some of the things that have, have guided my practice. are uh, um, If you want relatively quick progression. That's more likely to build confidence, self-efficacy than it is to lead to long term performance, you make it mentally easier, easier. And if you want relatively stickier learning make it a bit harder that idea of desirable difficulties another really important thing that i would think about is how much understanding do you want the learner to have how what do you take away um, and look for if we're thinking about long-term developments if we're thinking about learners progressing when they are not with you i personally believe that building understanding is a really critical element of coaching practice both from the view of cognition that is thinking about a problem and if you look at some of the work of amy price looking at metacognition the ways in which you think about thinking that help you problem solve and then i suppose finally looking at how you make content that is what you are coaching as personally relevant as possible to the learner does it meet their needs and does it meet their, and in many cases, does it meet their wants as well? That That's quite a tricky, uh, that's quite a tricky one to balance, isn't it? Because wants can often, very often, more often than not, are in conflict with 
And again, I suppose we'll sort of come into that in professional judgment decision because that is like a it's a judgment call then, isn't it, on your part? Um, do you do you so if we're talking about um, if we're talking about um, a set of learners that you were going to work with and you're assessing their needs, do you do you involve them in it, in that at all, or is that sort of like you sitting there? I suppose it would depend who you're working with. Let's just say you're working with a under 12s rugby team and you're assessing what they need versus what they want. What sort of process do you go through to do that? What sort of things would you do? Well, I would I would absolutely highlight it's been a very, very long time since I've worked with a group of under 12 rugby players. Um, so that, again, there would be people who are far more experienced in that domain than I am. If I was working, but yes, it, ultimately, I think it's a really important part of any educational practice to engage and involve the learner in what, you do, what they're doing. So if you don't understand what their wants, needs are, if you don't understand what's personally relevant to them, and if you don't engage with them, then I, I, I think it'd be very difficult for you to make a decision based on that starting principle of what does the learner need. I don't know how you do that without engaging with them. Um, sort of talking about wants and needs, I, I saw a thing that Greg Ashman put out, who is someone that is quite influential in, in pedagogy and research and that kind of thing. And it what you're saying there immediately makes me think of if you let so we're talking about um the learners saying what they want etc um and have playing a part you know giving them a role in what the sessions will look like how the plan will go is one of the things he said was that um given the choice most learners will choose learning method so i don't, I don't know this is where i think it's so important for coaches to understand the underpinning theory um, because that will have a huge impact I mean it, it you might look at it and think oh well you know we'll just get the kids to decide what they want to do you know because then we're going to get the engagement then we're going to get them to keep turning up and enjoying it because they've decided that's what they want to do but ultimately that could actually be bad for them long term in terms of their development would that be a fair assessment yes again I suppose it's it's um it's the swinging of the the, the pendulum a little bit as well because clearly you want learners to, and in line with that building of understanding, you also want learners to understand what's effective and why you're doing what you are doing as a coach. And if they understand why you're doing what you're doing, then they're far more likely to um, engage with it effectively and believe in your methods. So, for example, uh, th there are a number of elite teams that would struggle with the idea of implementing desirable difficulties or mentally taxing training because that's uh, stereotypically or socially not the norm now for a coach to in order to change that knowing how important the perception of the athlete is that's a really tricky social endeavor so and this is probably for me where the 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 complexity of coaching starts coming out because it's not just practice design it's also this social endeavor where you need an athlete to be really highly engaged and um, producing maximal effort in a learning activity but then so there's almost this uh, this idea of it being far more complex than it's this or it's that so going back to the, the Greg Ashman stuff, yes, I think there's plenty of evidence in education that is very transferable. I mean, for example, some pretty famous studies in in, uh, 
in higher education that show that those lecturers who rated the lowest on their teaching skills uh, also managed to improve students the most. Because ultimately, students are not necessarily qualified to make pedagogical judgments. And whether or not that trend, again, you're talking about this idea of transfer, transferability. So does that transfer over? Well, I don't know, but I do know that learning development, building of competence is highly not uh, not necessarily enjoyable. And as a result, I think it very much depends on the group that you're working with and how you shape their expectations of what coaching is. It's, it's, this is taking me in too, diff too many different directions in my head <laughs> because uh, there's so many things that I think that brings up. And I think that's where if you have like a surface understanding of these things, you can you could hear there's a danger you could hear that and say, right, the least popular professors are the ones that had the best outcomes for their students. So they're making them work really hard. And so, you know, I'm going to take these. Uh, I, I want my under 14s to be you know, really good rugby players and I'm going to make them do the things they don't want to do. You know, we're just going to work them really hard on their passing. They're going to do a whole load of tackle technique and a whole lot of defensive sessions that are really hard. You know, they're going to really have to think hard and, and physically play hard within that session because actually that's going to make them better. But but there's also that aspect of the, you need to integrate that with all the other elements as well. Because it seems to me at the moment, we're again, it is getting a bit uh, dichotomous. We're, we're, it's, it's one or the other. And it seems to be either fun and engagement or improving players that's obviously not the, the truth and if you go and watch any coaching session that will not be the truth that's a picture that comes from twitter but um there seems to be a, a, a real uh trend and theme on social media that fun and engagement are, are are the what we really need more than anything at the most because we've had 20 30 years of hard drilled practice to improve players is that would that be would you say that have you seen that or i think that um there is definitely a wave in social media that makes things very very simple um that often doesn't question well where does where where does the perception of enjoyment come from so some people enjoy hard tra training hard and most of the most of the most of the people in my context, well, that's you know that's what that's what they do for a living. So, and they will enjoy that process. Um, at the same time, well, where does enjoyment come from from a fourteen-year-old rugby player who turns up on a Sunday morning? And it's going to be a variety of different things. But if you look at the literature in motivation, the one thing that's consistently ignored, particularly on Twitter is the idea of, of building perceived competence, that is building performance for long-term motivation. And even if you look at, uh, uh, sorry if I'm, getting, I'm going off, off track a bit here, but if you look at say self-determination theory, which um, promotes, um, what it suggests a significant uh, role of autonomy is learner choice and building motivation, which I've got no doubt is true that if the more control that you have or the more perception you have over you, that you're controlling what you do, you're more likely to be motivated. But the 
there is an amount of, pre, of recent research that suggests that the main driving factor in that is competence. I am good. I believe I'm good. So I'm motivated to keep getting better. Now, if, <clears throat> if we think about the example of my daughter turning to play tennis, everybody around her is better. Um, engaging in games in some in a load of really fun games for her, which would be perfectly appropriate for other learners in the group. She just gets demoralised by it, but she hasn't gone, got the motor skills that the other the children in the group have. So it's it, it's so much more than this idea of give them games, give them fun, give them balloons versus stand in the line and uh, do this 17 times while I shout at you, which I think is the, the uh, I don't see many people um, promoting the latter one of those, but I see plenty of people promoting the former and characterizing perceived competence as the, as that idea of standing in line, do what you're told. And I think it's the blending of that, right? So again, I'm gonna throw this out there. You tell me what you think. So um, I was coaching on a summer camp. There's a real variability of kids that turn up. You know, generally I've been coaching in, in long-term environments, but this is you turn up for a week. Kids are, kids are paying to be on the course. Um, there, there, is, there is an expectation that they will get some sort of coaching and to, to them and their parents, there, there is a mental picture they have of what that would look like. So there's a bit of a pressure on that. But in general, I do prefer games-based uh, approach so in general i'm going to play games. so what my ultimate point is that i think there was there was a blending that happened here so we're uh, we're playing a game the ball is just going from one side to the other with no go forward um and some of the passes are being dropped so it's like right there's a bit of a problem here so i stopped the game we went into what essentially i would call a drill is we just did some two-on-ones and and within the two-on-ones i gave them some direct instruction is like, like they were struggling with those like just pick a side you're def you're going to go left and see what the, this two-on-one, see what the defender does. Obviously, the defender steps to the defender's right, so that to the attacker's left. They can put a pass across to, to the supporting player, score a try. Gave them some direct instruction. We practiced that, did it in a very drill-controlled, static-type environment. So, let's see if we can take that back into the game. And it did actually improve the game. So then they are, they're able to use some of those skills from the drill. And, and that is the way that I would see it, is that you, you're sort of blending these approaches. It's very rarely one or the other. And, and depending on the group you've got in front of you, you might spend more time in the drill-based scenarios and practicing and giving them direct instruction and fading that out over time so that they don't, you're not constantly telling them what to do, how to do it, you, but you need to spend blocks of time. Would that, would that be, would, would that, be something you would agree with or or more importantly this is what i should say is what, what am i missing there <laughs> because i know i'm missing something oh look, look i mean uh, there i'm sure there's plenty of stuff that we're all missing because there's so much that we don't understand but what strikes me there is um so if you look at the motor learning literature that um, transferability is very related to the distance travel from task so if it's if you're I'm hesitant to call it a drill because I don't think that that fully captures what's going on there. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Because so what you're doing is a more blocked task where they get the opportunity to repeat it again and again and again under relatively controlled conditions. Now, what was the impact of that? Was it short term skill acquisition? As in their motor control improved to the extent where they, they can suddenly execute in the game? 
I would doubt that. Was it a level of cognitive priming where suddenly they go, oh, right, okay, um, maybe if I just focus on this, this, this? Or was it that you helped them build an understanding of how to solve the problem that you previously set that they didn't know how to solve previously? Did you reduce the cognitive load, the number of things that they're thinking about, to the things that are most task appropriate? And was that the vehicle for transfer into the game? Now, this is where I think it's really important. This is where I, I suppose I keep banging on about it. the coaching being so much more than practice design and skill acquisition, because the number of variables that we're talking about here, and we didn't even get into the, the psychological variables of confidence, of somebody just being able to do something once and then therefore having a greater self-efficacy when they're back in the game compared to where they were previously and so on. This is where it's so much more than what motor learning tell, can tell us because it's such a social activity. And if we reduce coaching to skill acquisition, we just end up in this ridiculous tailspin. So uh, having having that understanding would have really helped me there when I deployed that within that, you know, it might even be something we sort of started off with. So, so I'm sort of keen, I, I know this is really hard for you to do, but if you could pick some sort of, We'll just rattle them off. We may or may not get into them. But uh, for someone who's listening to this, who, who's never really come across these things, what what would be some principles that they, some phrases they looked at? I, I really like cognitive priming. There, there's different types of practice, blocked, random mass uh, practice, that kind of thing. What could you name off some some principles, pedagogical principles that would be good for people to to go and research? And we'll see if we can get into some of them with with some examples. Well, I think that based on what you just told me, I think that the I mentioned the idea of making things mentally easy or ment mentally hard. That is, if it's mentally easy, and we can you can imagine the number of different things that that covers, but if it's relatively easy, it's likely to build confidence, improve short-term performance. And if it's mentally hard, it's more likely to be stickier, it's more likely to be retained. But obviously, if it's too hard, people don't learn anything because they just can't. Um, well, they, they, they don't know where to start. Now, I think that that's a relatively simple principle to, for a coach to wrestle with, but clearly how that plays out in practice is ridiculously complex. Now, the other thing that points to there is the role of learner understanding. Did your practice there promote a knowledge of, A, what they need to do, and importantly, why they need to do it? Did that then support all the other actions that took place? And this again is, again, it sounds like a relatively simple uh, principle, but it's that's pretty controversial. How's that? Well, um, so by promoting learner understanding, um, sorry, fancy word, but declarative knowledge, knowledge of why, so they could declare what they've done and why they've done it, yeah? Yeah, so they have an they have explicit understanding of why they're doing what they're doing. Now, that is a very cognitive approach to coaching. Yeah. So it'd be very similar to teaching games for understanding,
events, um, all of which promotes reflection on the game, learning about the game. And that's very, very different to, and I, I hesitate to say it because I see lots of different versions of ecological approaches, but that's a very different view of what uh, learning is in an ecological context. So is it fair to say that uh, there, I've seen this a fair bit and I think there's a sort of danger that we're, we're now getting CPD or continuous professional development or coach learning via meme, right? So people see something on the internet and it's very sticky because it's a, it's like a, a catchy image or a catchy phrase. So for example, a really catchy one that, and I say all of this because this is exactly what I do. It's like you get a catchy little phrase and you say, oh yeah, you know, uh, it, it's the game is the teacher. And there's a really well-intentioned idea behind that is that they need to pick up the information within the game to be able to learn how to solve the problem that's in front of them. And, and you necessarily telling them can't do that. But it, uh, for example, game sense or whether it's, it's not the game that's teaching me reflecting on the game. So you play the game, you have some sort of reflection that might well be in a pause in the game where you're a pause in the game or a time when you haven't actually got the ball or, you know, you haven't got literally time to be thinking about it. And then you reflect on what happened and that's where the learning occurs. Is that, is that a fair assessment of, of learning? It's reflecting on. Uh, so that'd be a, a mechanism by which you drive or, div, uh, or it, drive learning in a cognitive approach like game sense but there's also the role of the, te the, the coach the teacher in both teaching games for understanding game sense um, and the utilization of a variety of different methods that uh, promotes learner cognition learner thinking and that's the central bit of that that and i think this is it and I, I've, I've read a lot of ecological dynamics and i'm sure i'll get shot down for saying this but um, the key distinction that I think I see is the role of cognition. So, um, and ecological approaches, or some of them, would suggest that it's a it acts as a, an informational constraint. So, along with all the other constraints on practice, thinking about it is one of them. Whereas cognitive approaches would suggest that it drive is the driver. Two two things. This is gonna be, I'm gonna. It's a very hard thing. So, the, can you very briefly explain that ecological approach for for people that might be listening that are just you know like a volunteer coach, a, a very top line of the ecological approach, and then how would they shoot you down? What would they say about that? This is a really difficult question to answer yeah. because based on what I see at the moment, there are lots of different versions of ecological dynamics floating around, and there are lots of different explanations of how coaching practice takes place based on ecological principles. <clears throat> so I'm really cautious of this. But I suppose if you look at, say, the principle, uh, so I'll, I'll simplify it uh, yeah. as best I can. So is the idea in the ecological approach that there is no such thing as memory. You don't remember things. Yeah. That it's more about um, perceptual calibration. Yeah. or attunement to affordances that sees the you as an individual as a self-organizing organism and your behaviors are shaped by various constraints, task, individual, environmental. Now, um, task constraints could be, well, we change the rules of the game. 
individual constraints might be that um, you've got one leg stronger than the other. I'm being, I'm being really, I'm being a little bit facetious there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and environmental constraints when it's raining, pitch is soggy, and so on. Now, what the coach does is that they shape those uh, constraints. Now, it could be that could be an instruction you offer that shapes the the individual constraints, the ways that you think about practice, uh, but along with other environmental constraints. Now, this is where I see a bit of a difference because I think that some people who would, would suggest an ecological approach would emphasise the environment and being an environmental designer as being the critical thing, and that's the role of the coach, and perhaps wouldn't reference the other constraints that might be available to them. Now, all of that sounds a lot like changing the rules of a game, um, exaggerating task demands, as per Rod Thorpe, 1984, teaching games for understanding. The critical difference is how much you want the learner to be thinking about it and how much that thinking about it, representing things in your mind, in your head, is the driver of learning. I put you on the spot there because that's a very deep subject. And so and it's very difficult for you because there's a lot for people that could criticise at length over that. But the point of that is for someone who's just listening to this as a as a coach with, you know, that isn't a professional researcher or whoever can go, OK, right, I understand what, what you mean by, by ecological. And so it's, it's looking at, at it as a, as a world view, so, you know, the ecology of that world of that game and, and how you sort of interact within that. And, and obviously there is cognition within that. And so yeah, you said that they, they might shoot you down for what you're saying. What sort of thing, how would that, how would they shoot you down? Or, you know, what would be the best argument you could make for, for that? I think that you, you just get different representations of economics and clearly I'm, I'm, I'm enormously oversimplifying that quite a large body of yes. work as well. Yes, but we're, we're doing that for a reason, <laughs> to make it accessible. Now, look, my view would be that uh, there are a couple of things that I would struggle with with ecological dynamics, and this is where I'm very open to being shot down, but the key question that I don't think I know the answer to uh, and I've asked a number of people this is, well, what happens when you take the constraints away? That is, what happens when you learn something? Because if we play, I don't know, five versus five in a 20 metre space, narrow pitch, particular task environmental constraints, what's the mechanism for transfer into a game? Because cognition is only a constraint. Now, lots of people would then talk about knowledge in the game rather than about the game as being a critical difference. That is, I show learning through achievement affordances, to, through perceptual calibration. But what is that? Because that's why I don't think we've got an adequate explanation versus, say, a cognitive approach, which would suggest that um, through reflecting on thinking about something that you learn it and it's stored in memory. Now, there's then an approach that says, well, the, the brain is not a computer, which I think we can all pretty well agree on, but it's, it, it's a metaphor for what happens when you think about something. 
And it's the extent to which those memories and those cognitions drive human behavior versus simply being a constraint on it. So now this is something that I often think and uh, is that um, I'm a, a strength and conditioning coach. I get paid to do what I do. So it's, it's in my interest to, to have a deep understanding of coaching, how people learn, etc. But I'm balancing a load of information about strength and conditioning, particularly now specialising in youth, writing programmes, doing all this kind of thing. It's not that important to me, the underlying processes. It, I understand it's important because if all of a sudden we found out that something could be explained in a totally different way, it could change the way that we then implement that in practice but uh how important is it for me to care about these underpinnings so for example um I, i'll tell you how i sort of coach is i'll go into the gym and i'll try and use so my shallow understanding of of learning will be that uh the, the more explicit information that i give to someone the more that can cause reinvestment and that can cause a breakdown of skills. So if I give, let's just take a quick example. I'm teaching someone to squat who can't squat particularly well. The more information I fill their head up with, that can cause a break. So reinvestment is that they start to have such a huge cognitive load that the skill breaks down. They can't physically do it because they're thinking much more than they are doing. So I'll try and use implicit methods um, to achieve what I want to do. So for example, uh, if they're hinging instead of squatting, I'll stick them in front facing a wall. So if they hinge, they're going to headbutt the wall and I don't even need to tell them anything. They will just then learn that they need to sort of sit down over their base of support, i.e. their feet. Um, and that's much more important to me. However, if I, if I'm in the gym and there's a kid that's really struggling with an aspect of the squat, which is potentially quite dangerous, like their knees are dropping in, I can give them one quick thing and say, hey, listen, can you feel your knees dropping? Yeah, yeah. And I'll give them totally the wrong things to do, which is an internal cue, so thinking about what's going on in their bodies. Just shove your knees out. I could give them a constraint. I could set up a lot of, uh, of uh, uh, environmental uh, constraints or, you know, sort of rules on them to without telling them but i can just get in there go do do this oh it's solved happy days we carry on and, and there's no there's no sort of problem so it's not, i know i haven't asked you a question there but that's sort of the way that i operate around my constraints or oh, i shouldn't use that word i don't like saying that but is that's the way i operate within my world so how important should it be to me about whether or not perception can be explained via cognition or via the environmental ecological dynamics okay so in my view the the question of what's the role of cognition in learning and development fundamentally shapes your practice and that's why i think it's really important to have to take a view on and certainly be informed by evidence on so it becomes less less a uh, so if you're going to meet the needs of learners then I think you need to have a view on what you are trying to get them to engage with, as in how are you trying to shape their learning experience? Almost, uh, if I'm going to really simplify, get into their head, try and figure out what you want them to be doing, what, what, what you want to be going on for them. So when we think about implicit learning, you've got the theory of reinvestments. That is that when somebody's under pressure, and they've learned a skill explicitly, it's more likely to break down under pressure. 
they're more likely to reinvest and focus internally when their focus should be external. And there's a reasonable body of evidence that's not uncontested that would suggest that. Now, the, what's been proposed as a result of that is that learning should be implicit, that learning is more robust when it's implicit. But I think there's also another body of evidence that would suggest, and if you look at the work of, uh, say, Howie Carson, who's done some work with Dave Collins, that's looked at, well, if we want to adapt a skill, if we want to change a skill, then there's no reason why you can't go from the explicit to the implicit. That is, raise conscious awareness, help somebody understand what's going on for them, and then automate it, if you like. Because clearly, let's say you're a golfer and you're standing on the first tee at um, Augusta, there are things that you would rather not be thinking about. But it doesn't mean that learning happens that way. And this is the difference between learning and performance. There is a performance state and a learning state. I've sort of noticed that in, the, in my coaching because I, I, I tend to be a little bit more explicit and a bit more hands-on when I first, I suppose this, will, this would what would be called bandwidth feedback. Is you, you can start with quite a lot of uh, feedback and fade that out over time. And so uh, particularly the, the kids that I coach at the moment, I can be quite explicit, can be quite hands-on with spending a fair bit of time with them and I try and sort of fade away quite quickly from that and I, th I feel like they need that like they they want someone standing watching them I, I, one of the things I've been experimenting with is they do they do a skill and I say the, they, they the first thing I do is turn and look at me expecting me to tell them so right, well no no you tell me how was it did you do a good job and it's I'm not trying to catch they realize after a little while I'm not trying to catch them out but they as they get older, that I, I'm happy to do that to them because I think they understand the, the relationship we've got. But when they first come in, they're sort of the, the younger kids. They need that support from me. I'm going to be here. I'm going to tell you what to do. You can trust in me. It's all going to be okay. And then if I fade that out, by two or three years' time, they're, they're not really thinking about any of those things. So I have been quite explicit with them. But you fade that out, and it sort of just washes away. And I had a good example of this in the gym the other day. I tried to get one of the kids to to show someone else how to deadlift. And I said, right, show me a deadlift. Right, bang on, perfect, good good form. Right, so talk him through it. Because I talked this kid through it a year ago, and he couldn't remember. <laughs> He's like, I said, right, well, what do you do with your feet? <laughs> what do you do? You know, because we have a thing, feet, hands, grip, and, uh, and shins, set your back and lift. And he couldn't remember any of it. And that was only sort of w within a year. And so would that be... Would that negate the effects of reinvestment? Is that bandwidth and potentially what's happening with reinvestment would be golfers or Olympic lifters or technical sports who have a coach who is constantly talking to them about the technical things, which is sort of reinforcing that constantly in their mind. But if they if they had that bandwidth which was faded out, that would be less of a problem for them. So I, so I suppose for me, bandwidth feedback is understanding what you're going to feed back on. Oh, okay. What elements, and it probably pay, um, and this is this idea of cognitive load theory which suggests that there are only certain number certain number of things that you can pay attention to at once and now um, when you're offering bandwidth feedback you're saying well I'm only going to offer feedback if, if performance goes outside particular boundaries yeah, yeah, yeah. and everything else I'm hoping the learner will be able to engage in a process of 
uh, reflection or debrief based on what's just happened, or perhaps um, go completely implicit and not think at all. Now, in the case that, as, I, as I'm hearing you play this situation with a deadlift out, it sounds a lot like you've got a learner who's perhaps implicitly learned how to deadlift, can do it, but hasn't hasn't necessarily got explicit knowledge of the declarative knowledge of deadlifting, and therefore might be able to demonstrate it, but can't verbalise what they're doing. Which might be a good thing if he's going into a competition to deadlift, but it might be a bad thing if if he's working in some sort of other environment within a sport where he would need to explain what he requires of someone else or what he's going to be doing. Is that? Or if he's aiming for a 300 kilo deadlift and he's got to make some slight adjustments to his technique and know why he's making slight adjustments to his technique. So, uh, for example, I was listening to a sort of reading something that Donald Bradman had sent a reply to Justin Langer. Justin Langer had sent him a letter asking some advice about his batting technique, struggling on his back foot. And uh, Donald Brabham said, well, this is how I did it in, on uh, slower pitches. Now, if he doesn't understand why he's doing what he's doing, he can't make that adjustment on a slower pitch, can't make that adjustment based on how the ball's moving, because it's all implicit and he's just going to hit the ball. Um, which is why I believe that athletes understanding the why is really important. So uh, another phrase that I love is uh, Piaget. Uh, when when you tell someone what, how to do something, you take for, take away forever their chance of learning it for themselves. Um, and also that something else that I've had is where I, I t I've stepped back and given them um, some rules or set up some sort of task or game or something like that and they blow my mind by doing something i would never have expected and that actually works really well the, the example i used once was um i was playing a game with some girls playing netball and uh it was just you had to clap before you catch the ball um and they found it so easy they were quite high level that they were clapping the floor and so um before they passed the ball i was like i sort of wonder across oh what are you doing i said oh it was too easy so we now made it harder by clapping the floor and I saw that the position they were in was a really good ready position. So if you're going to teach the ready position to athletes, that's now how I do it. That's one of the things I do because it sort of just puts you in a really good position. And so how does that interplay with the more explicit stuff is that, you know, that there, there are things that the way that they're going to learn it, if, if, if you leave it to them, they might learn it in a way that's more relevant to them that might make, you know, for, it's a very silly example, but, um, when we're learning to sprint, thinking of a plane might work a lot better for me than it does for you. And thinking about uh, an explosion going off behind you might might work for you a lot a lot better than me. How do how do you how do you balance those two things of letting them learn and explore it and learn it their way for themselves versus them really getting it badly wrong and setting themselves up for a lot of problems in the future? So I think there's, there's a couple of things going on there. One is that implicit learning isn't necessarily discovery learning. Because implicit means I'm, I'm doing it without thinking about yeah. it. Um, discovery learning could be, it could be implicit, but it could also be that I'm thinking my way through this. I'm reflecting on it as I'm, as I'm doing it. 
without a guided discovery is that the role of the coach, the teacher, is there to shape how they think about something and guide them towards whatever the, the end is. And the specific example of the netballers, I'd be thinking about, well, number one, um, what are the benefits of teaching this implicitly versus explicitly? How long have you got? Yeah. Because implicit learning clearly is going to take longer. And there's that trade-off of, is it better done implicitly or explicitly? For example, if you're teaching tackling in rugby, then I wouldn't be teaching that implicitly, particularly with a young group. Then you've got the idea of transferability. So ready position is really useful in a number of different sports. So if those girls go and play cricket, well, it's really important to have a high quality ready position to catch. But does the tra does that transfer? So do is raising awareness, raising understanding of the ready position, does that help them transfer from netball to cricket or to rugby or to any other sport where you need a ready position, which is nearly everything the way you're standing up? And those are the sorts of questions it's worth wrestling with because, uh, and look, I, I don't know the answer, um, but I know how I would likely coach it to try and encourage transfer. And then that, I suppose that pretty neatly leads along to uh, it depends and professional judgment and decision-making. And um, long before it sort of became a, a bit of a discussion point, um, it, I, I've always sort of thought in my mind, it was something I just we always used to say, and it, I think I sort of spoke to you about it before in the previous podcast, is it depends, it used to drive me crazy when I was sort of like a bit of a, a junior coach or a novice coach, because I just wanted to be told exactly like what I was saying about with those kids that first come in the gym, is like it's a totally different environment, they don't really know what's going on, they, if, if I come in and say, come with me, stand here, do this, everything's going to be all right. I'm going to show you or look after you. It's like, oh, great. And it's a similar being a, a novice coach. You know, I, I played rugby and then started to coach. And all of a sudden you're stood in front of up to 30 people uh, and you've got to take charge. You've got to run them through the session. And I wanted to know what I should be doing, exactly what, what to do. But, but the reality is every situation is so vastly different and one tiny thing could radically change the way that you, you know, one one aspect being slightly different could totally change the way that you you approach that. So it depends is to me is is, is a really important point. And I don't understand there is a there is a a, a, a line of thinking that it's a cop out. Uh, that's that's what I've seen as the criticism of it depends. But but to me, I think it it, it just applies in every situation. And so what you're talking about there is all, we have all these different principles and methods, but what to deploy and when to deploy them is something that we call professional judgment and decision making. And that helps us with the, the, it depends. So I've given you a couple of scenarios and then you've sort of, I'm assuming you've run that through a, that sort of framework. Is that, is that what you're, is that something that you're thinking when I'm saying, oh, you know, I've got these netball girls, is that you're sort of running that through that professional judgment decision making? said are they going to play cricket um are they playing other sports you know how how long have you got with them that kind of thing is that is that is that how you deploy 
professional judgment decision making and it depends so a few things one for me would be that the it depends is a profound level of uncertainty for you for you as a practitioner now i think to the point about what coaches want comes down to an expectation of what coaching practice is and what the profession is because people just assume there are, are answers and that the answers are there to be found and that coaching should be e easy because we need to make it easy for lots of people to do it. Now, I think that's where a lot of the criticism is coming from. It doesn't acknowledge that this is an unbelievably difficult thing to do and that for, for me, I will probably spend the rest of my life trying to understand coaching and I'll try to understand how to get better at coaching. Um, the Where I think people fall short is, well, there's we just need to tell people how to do this. And even though when we're talking about the game that you played on that summer camp earlier on, where you moved into a more blocked practice, well, I'm still ticking over in my head thinking, well, how, there are so many other layers that you could go into there. Now, ultimately, I would say that the key distinguishing feature of it depends is what it needs to start where the learner is, where the player is, where the athlete is. And then you can draw on lots of different theories to inform your practice. But ultimately, it's about intention for impact and understanding how different methods that you can use, different behaviours, et cetera, et cetera, can influence the progress of that athlete and that or that team. Now, if we were going to go into the, the uh, and I'll, I'll use another term here, but the idea of biopsychosocial, and what that is, is that human development is based on uh, biological factors, psychological factors, and social factors, and the interrelationship between those things. So if you look at the reasons why people do what they do, well, there's an, un, there's an unbelievably large number of factors going on that are complex that interrelate. So what does it depend on? Well, it depends on those things. So if you're going to list, a, if you're going to have a, a clear idea of, well, what does it depend on? Well, you need to. It needs to be a, a contextually specific example. So in with the idea of bandwidth feedback, you might have an idea of uh, when is bandwidth feedback appropriate. Well, bandwidth feedback is probably appropriate nearly all the time. Unless, of course, you, you choose not to offer any feedback whatsoever because you've got to give an intention with a learner that either you are testing them, as in you want them to get through something independently without your input, or you want them to be, if you don't, they are actively reflecting enough that you, you have become a crutch, in which case you just withdraw feedback completely. So, but the conditions by which that, that depends on it, I mean, they're enormous. And they change. Yeah, they change day to day, week to week. And I would say that the important bit that we probably haven't talked about necessarily is the age and stage of learner, which is where they are and also where they, where you, where they want to get to. So it's just this massive web of different, uh, of different complex factors. Now, um, 
I can, look, I'm sure there'll be some people listening going, well, that's great, but I want to coach and I don't really care about any of that. And that this this guy here is just um, um, uh, making it all very academic for the sake of it. Now, I, I don't think I am because all of us have to deal with these things. And guess what? We all have to take action. <clears throat> but to me, that the development of how you think and the pro your process of thinking towards a given end is really, really important. Which goes back to that, the initial idea of PJDM is that you've got your um, two different start, uh, two different um, ways of making decisions. One is a more slower, reflective, offline-based decision making that could be reflection uh, on action or for action, if you like. And then you've got reflection in action, the quicker. Uh, more naturalistic type decisions that you take when you're actually when you're in the moment, and that you can shape the latter by planning, thinking more long term, having a think about well, what does it depend on? Where does the, where's where does this learner ultimately end up? And then you make decisions in action based on that. And yeah, so I, I, I suppose the more the more. Would it be fair to say that the more slow, effortful, conscious thinking that you do, so what, what they might call, yeah, slow, so Daniel Kahneman, the psychologist, said fast and slow thinking, so type one, fast thinking, type two, slow thinking. The more, more slow, effortful thinking that you do, the better you will be in the fast thinking because I'm just suddenly now thinking, I'm fairly sure that I, I saw something that actually if we just go with our type one thinking nine times out of 10, we're going to be, it's, it, it's better for you just to be, you know, so there will, we would have things called heuristics with like rules of thumb that we use day to day, because if we were to slowly effortlessly think about everything we did, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be able to move because <laughs> it would just overwhelm us. So it seems to me there's it, number one, is that true? Our, 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 is our type one thinking uh, pretty pretty good for us so, so as a coach you'll you'll look at a session so if you get dropped into a session look at it you you sort of fairly instantly pick up on something that you think is wrong and be able to act on it but if we if we'd spent more effortful slow thinking would that help us with our fast thinking or am i wrong there that that doesn't seem to flow to me so uh, i'm not sure that Kahneman would agree but then i'm not as familiar with his work as say that of gary klein Gary Klein's the more naturalistic end. Yeah. Um, and I would suggest that uh, Klein would absolutely agree that slow offline thinking significantly helps online quicker decisions. And that's been, by the way, incidentally, that's been reflected in a team sport context as well. So um, if you look at the work of Pam Richards in developing shared mental models, there's some really interesting stuff that coaches can do offline, that is sitting down, talking through, thinking about making tactical decisions that then informs decisions on the pitch and in the same way for same mechanisms for coaches but obviously how you think is really important because if you end up just reflecting on the same stuff without really challenging yourself uh, reinforcing your current practice without really critically thinking about what you're doing what underpins it then you do the same stuff, and you'll forgive me. Forgive me for getting the forgetting the reference. I'm sure that not many people listening to this will care about me missing references. But yeah. this is this this idea of 
you can coach for 10 years and you can either have 10 years experience or one year 10 times yeah i, I think um <clears throat> that would be where the range of tools is the important thing so so for example I suppose it's a very difficult job for national governing bodies, but if there's a a national governing body, has to condense that into an approach. So, for example, um, we talked in the the first podcast about my level two rugby, and it was we were delivered game sense, and there was there was a discussion around why you would use game sense, etc. And then there was almost an expectation. I'm def. I mean, it was so long ago. Uh, it was 2007 or eight or something. So I'm sure it's totally changed by now, but there was like, right, we've plumped with this approach game sense. We've, here's why this is what it is. And we expect you to deliver your assessment <laughs> using game sense. And then um, I think we, you, you sort of spoke about that before is that, you know, you need a range of tools to be able to deploy according to it, it depends. Um, and then, within situations you, you you have type one and type two so you're on pitch it's going to be type one you're, you're coaching the game's not going quite as well as you, you you expect it to be or there's problems you have to very quickly sort them out and type two type thinking is like okay this is what happened in the game on saturday we've got training on tuesday discussing with your other coaches so that would be the shared mental model about what you're going to do why you're going to do it what would be the <clears throat> what would be the best tools to use to achieve that so I think we sort of spoke last time about um about some of the coaching you were doing and uh you had a very limited amount of time to work with um the players on line outs and so that helped you to frame a whole series of decisions into what that session would look like and it, it it's a, a decision making framework for you so that is that that's what I'm trying to get to is where coaches can sort of listen to this and then start to look up implicit and explicit learning different kinds of feedback whether it's augmented feedback bandwidth feedback um, blocked practice mass practice variable practice um, but I, I said it before and I probably said I'm going to say it again is that I, those are the things I don't see being talked about the the, the, the principles it will just be the methods the game work well, is game sense or it's teaching games for understanding or uh, gamification or any of these methods rather than the principle because then you can use the principle anywhere anyhow whereas gamification is gamification and that is it you just go in and sort of do that I, there's something wrong with what i'm saying there but i'm uh, i'm 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 looking forward to you to telling me what it is <laughs> hey well look i mean so my view would be it's probably less about the principle and more the why so why is this particular method appropriate and there's a, a subtle and important distinction that, again, people are probably going to be thinking, what's he on about? But the difference between methodology and method, and I would far rather, rather think about methods than methodology, methodology being a way of doing it. Methods, I understand why I might deploy different methods for different purposes. Um, and I suppose to the point about coach education, I mean, look, I don't, I don't know enough about level one, level two type coaching approaches, but um, I would say that if you look at what's a, the expectations of coaches in there and how you manage those, I think that's really important because we know that coaches will predominantly develop their practice socially, and they would far rather engage with social media and other coaches to for learning. And I think we need to effectively set coaches up for that journey and say, look, great. This is a, and again, I'm, I don't know if this is what's happening, so this is not in any way a criticism. 
But if a coach attends a level one and gets told, right, here you go, without necessarily a setup of what comes next, that is, here's a bit of the declarative knowledge, the why, here's a bit of the procedural knowledge so you can get going. That declarative knowledge sets up the critical thinking that's really necessary, particularly in the social media world. So the last time you spoke about um, there was a situation where you were talking to, I don't know if it was another coach or coach developer, and, and they were saying that they're, they're really noticing the difference that now there were fewer and fewer coaches coming through with classical teacher training, and, and that was very noticeable to them. So how would that manifest? How would that appear? Why would they be saying that kind of thing that, you know, that they can see now coaches are coming through without an understanding of the pedagogy and the methodology? So I'm hoping that will put a bit of context to what you just said effectively. Yeah, so I mean, I certainly don't want to speak for the other person. So this is probably me playing out what yeah. they might be thinking, but it, uh, coach developed from another country working for a national governing body was just saying that, look, we're seeing far fewer teachers coming through as coaches. We see more professional coaches. All oh, right, okay. Yeah. Now, their view was the res- the impact was that professional development for coaches is far less than that of a teacher, and it has a very different base from which to operate from. And if you are a teacher, you engage with a significant amount of training. And I think we talked about this. My view of going through teacher training myself, but then the social. We, we think about what's what, what's the, a teacher socially expected to do, what's their role, curriculum planning, uh, viewing a long-term journey, scaffolding, doing little, so offering um, small steps to learners, managing cognitive load, all of this type of thing that is both implicit and explicit in teaching practice and probably less seen in, co- in coaching and and as a result, there was a significant skill set missing from coaches who were either coming from an ex-playing background or just come straight into professional coaching. But again, I'm not in any way suggesting that either of those two groups can't be outstanding coaches because it'd be ridiculous of me to suggest that they, they can't be. Yeah, I suppose, um, again, it sort of highlights that, that variability uh, in individuals, doesn't it? So um, I'm just trying to think of a of a way to sort of sum up a lot of what we've talked about. But because again, like my mind is going in so many different directions about everything that we've spoken about. So I'm trying to I'm trying to imagine someone sitting here now. They're, they're uh, a rugby coach, obviously rugby coach weekly. Um, they're a rugby coach. They now need to take some sort of steps around this is you know what how do i sort of use some of this information to take some other steps to improve what i do you know what would be the things that i could do as a a volunteer because you know like we said many many coaches are volunteers or or they're doing many other things around their coaching um to to help them with that decision making so i actually i i have looked at the research on P, PJD and professional judgment decision making is actually quite accessible. Um, it's, it's fairly easy to understand. There's some good frameworks in there. So I think Andy Abraham had one about what you were talking about, starting with the learner. He's got quite a good model about that, hasn't he? Is who, who are you coaching? Who, what, how? He had quite a good model of that. So would there be some things that you could recommend people could go to 
to start to build some sort of extra framework around what they would get from NGBs or from around other areas to start to put this together. So again, it's really difficult for me to say based on um, not knowing what NGBs are doing at a certain level. So I'm, I'm just going to hold off on that bit. Yeah, fair. I, so I would say that number my number one bit would probably be just be really comfortable with having a, a view on coaching that goes, well, I'm not sure. Yeah. And just as in the same way that, say, I'm going to cook dinner tonight for, for, the, for the family, well, um, I am in no way anywhere near, say, uh, a world a world class Michelin starred chef, and I am in nor- very very well aware of the distance between me and the Michelin starred chef, and the level of, uh, I suppose, extra work that if I was re- if I really wanted to, that I would need to put put in put in to get to that level. So, I would say, look, if you are really keen to do to move yourself towards that level, then uh, you're gonna. I think you have to get in if you're really gonna understand coaching, not necessarily just do it, because those are two different things. As you can be an outstanding coach and it all be completely tacit, but obviously a bit vulnerable if that's the case, and that is you can't describe why you're doing what you're doing, etc. Then you need to get stuck into some some academic reading, of which I would absolutely start with PJDM, whether that's the work of, of Dave Collins or um, Bob Muir's taking it in a, a subtly different direction as well. There's some, there is some really interesting work out there that you can get into. Um, ultimately, though, I think applying, so getting the balance between scepticism and uh, openness is a really difficult one. So think through what you're seeing, particularly on Twitter, um, and don't just either confirm it, as in, this is definitely it, this is really glossy, shiny, must be true, or just deny it because you don't like the sound of it. Use that as a stimulus to go, okay, well, I might investigate this a bit further. Something I struggle with is that the balance between having a go at something and recognizing that it might not be the right thing to do. But I'm a strong believer that you need to get out and and start applying these things to see how they sort of, how they, how they pan out for you. Um, So I'll give an example, sort of like the constraints led approach is like, I've started to learn about the constraints led approach. I saw already some, you know, once I'd learned about that, I saw elements of that that I was already doing it gave me ideas for other things that I could do. And so I started to just implement that in my approach and see what happened with the athletes. And so now there are certain circumstances, like I said, where I probably wouldn't use the constraints that approach or I would use minimal constraints uh, and might be more explicit or whatever. And um, it always sort of slightly concerns me is like, but what if I'm doing this wrong? And in two years, I sort of find out that actually this, this starts to get rubbished. And, and that's something I've noticed a lot within coaching is that, as soon as I see something that's really interesting, I now sort of think, I wonder how long it will be until all the sort of problems start to come floating up to the top with this. So how how do people, because I think that's the, the reality is that most people will see something and go, oh, fantastic. Jump in, let's, let's, let's go off and, and, and use that. And actually, you know, 
we sort of come to find that it's probably not the best thing to do or you know in the, in that circumstance that they're working in it, it it probably hasn't been good and you know you're you're working with athletes that are trying to improve or you know they're trying to learn something and, and you may potentially not have been doing the right thing with them so i'd probably think about moving beyond right and wrong yeah because ultimately we're all here just to get that little bit better just trying to get a little bit better all the time um theory hopefully hopefully gets a little bit better which helps you as a coach get a little bit better so i wouldn't necessarily worry about being wrong <clears throat> i would just consistently reflect on why am i doing what i'm doing so for example if uh, your use of a constraints based approach is there as a as a tool by which you think about how you can change the rules of the game and um, help players think about getting well it's probably not a constraints-based approach but at the same time um, are you providing players with a range of different things to engage with in a training session which help them move on well yes but if you're going to be really good at what you do you need to understand why you're doing what you're doing same as so let's say if you're coaching line out why do you want to drive from middle to tail but rather than the front and those are the whys that drive your decision making. I think it's important to look at what actually happens as well, because that's something that I'm, I think in strength and condition, it's really obvious because uh, you, you, you use a method. So you have a principle, okay, <clears throat> we need to get strong. We need to develop some, some basic rate of force development to use a sort of fancy word. Um, we'll have a method to do that, which will be, uh, I'm just going to, talking to someone else we're going to use a triphasic method and then you look at that and then it's very obvious because you do get some concrete numbers and I, I think uh, in rugby obviously it's a lot harder to do that but I think it's really important for coaches to to look at some of the results of what has happened within their practice you know to sort of say okay we'll we'll, we'll start to use some of this methodology because we think that will be appropriate for, for these reasons and then sit down and reflect on what sort of impacts that's had and, and where it might be appropriate and where it might not be appropriate. But I think they can, I think um, coaches can, can tend to get caught up in the week to week or the session to session. Um, is, is that something that you have tackled is, you know, like looking season to season about, uh, about results and about uh, what you think, because you talked about this earlier, about it's simply not enough what went well, what didn't go well. How does that fit into your approach? Well, this is, I mean, the starting point is always what's your intention for impact? What do you want to do? And unless you frame that pretty well, it's difficult to make a judgment about how well you've done it or the extent to which it has happened. And that's probably where I, I think that it's, it's most reflection of this type falls down. So, for example, if you say, I don't know, so the stereotypical one, we weren't very good at handling on Saturday, so we're going to do a handling session on Tuesday. End of the Tuesday night session, everyone says, oh, great, well, we've improved our handling, great. But that box is ticked. Now, um, having an intention for impact clearly is important, but it's also important to know what's actually feasible and why. So if you say, right, Tuesday night, we're going to improve our handling, well, everybody know well if, if you've got that base layer of knowledge you know that's not going to happen you might raise a bit of confidence 
it might help people develop a bit of self-efficacy. Players might believe that's what they need. So it acts as an, an overall positive emotional stimulus. But in terms of actual learning development, it's very, very unlikely to take place in the course of an hour and a half on a Tuesday night. So this is where it might be slightly counterintuitive or it must be counterintuitive because this is what happens. We have a poor we have a poor handling. You know, our handling is poor on Saturday. Coaches will bring the players in and to, to refer right back to the beginning, they'll do something with an easy cognitive load running up and down in lines of four, just sticking a ball across. And so that will get quick progress. They'll be better by the end of Tuesday. But the point is to be stickier because it's got to last until Saturday. So actually what you might do is Tuesday, Thursday, do quite hard cognitive load sessions, you know, where they're having to think about their passing in, in more, com you know, there's, there's, there's a bigger load on them. And in Tuesday and Thursday, the session handling might not get that better. And then on Saturday, before you go out to play, do something with easy cognitive load to just stick the hands across, you know, just to practice those movement patterns. Is that, would that be a... So for me, you'd need to look at it much longer term. Yeah. It would need to be something that was, that was done over the course of a very, very long period of time. Um, particularly if you're looking to make technical change with a more advanced group and you're unlikely to see actual improvement and transfer to the game beyond the development of self-efficacy. So, I mean, I, I'm, just to be absolutely clear, by the way, I am definitely not suggesting that coaches shouldn't do um, unopposed, massed, blocked practice for that specific purpose. But it's very good for developing confidence, very good for warming up, um, and very good for drilling of motor patterns, if you like. But we've just got to be aware of what our expectations are. I mean, look, if I would suggest that a, a more appropriate time frame, if there is a need for or a long-term need to improve handling skills, I think it's a project that you're talking months, and that's with skillful coaching as well. So that's a very good example of why a coach needs to understand pedagogy and how learning occurs, because at the moment there is this view of pretty much session to session and actually it should be this is something that's much more global and that would that would mean that you would see less of that kind of thing in rugby type practices because people would understand that the stickier type of learning is going to take a lot longer and there'll be a different approach that you would take to doing that yeah and this is the challenge for all for most team sports is that there's a tends to be a weekly cycle of play 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 versus a um a more individual sport or combat sport where you've got a long lead in, long period of preparation leading into competition where you can make significant technical adjustment working one on one um, and you've got a long time to do it. And that's where the demands of team sport add a, another really difficult layer. If, of course, that competing to win is a really critical factor because for most. For most, for most coaches we're talking about, that the Saturday or Sunday game is just another step, another learning step, less so the central importance of winning the game. And so 
my sort of way to wrap this up would be that I think if 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 I was if I was looking at, at coaching as as a process, I would be less interested in uh, I think already the conversation's moved on quite a lot because a lot of coach education used to be technical tactical it used to be pretty much exclusively technical tactical with a tiny little bit of the art of coaching tagged onto it and so now if I if I were if I was going to sum this up you tell me what you think about this is that someone's listening to this now is that from a coaching development point of view if I started to focus my education on teaching learning and problem solving that would that would set me up well to to frame my learning into the things that I look at rather than thinking about how do I improve someone's handling how do I improve someone's tackling if they thought more about learning of teaching and learning and problem solving they would then be able to apply those specifics whether it was handling or whether it was tackling or or attacking within the opposition 22 etc uh y- yes but it's a qualified yes i mean it, coaching is a you're helping people learn so if you don't understand if you haven't got a view on how people learn i think it's pretty difficult to do your job but i would say don't disregard other elements because clearly you want them to learn the technical and tactical so if and you, the way in which you help people learn the technical tactical depends on what that technical and tactical is. I mean, for example, the difference between tackling in football and rugby, those technical differences produce an entirely different way of approaching how you would coach it because of safety, because of um, physical demands and so on. So but if you had that understanding of uh, the long-term process of how, of, of, yourself as the teacher as it were the athlete learning and and problem solving when when where how how often that's that's why I, I, I like I said before is that I see um see a lot of coaching education being around methods and not, not so much about the the how is a lot of the pedagogy stuff is like I said is ta- I, I mean I did a, a, a the athletics assistant coach award we must have done at least three hours on health and safety and we did 20 minutes on guided discovery <laughs> learning <laughs> so it was like it's sort of that again very long time ago I'm, I'm sure it's all changed but I, I, I think it might be helpful to coaches to to reframe their professional development to think in those terms I, I, I think pro, all coaching is problem solving isn't it that you've got a problem how am I going to solve this and what will it look like what what is the situation? What am I going to do to, to change that situation? Because I'm assuming it assuming it does need change. Um, and so then as a coach, my development would be more around looking at general teaching and learning resources than it would be looking at technical uh, technical coaches posting videos on Twitter about the tackle. Uh, I, that's the foundation, I think. The, the pedagogy, the understanding of learning. However, I would absolutely keep every strand going, but just applying the critical lens all the way through. That that idea of professional judgment, decision making, and why might I do something? Because I wouldn't necessarily. I think that there needs to be an understanding of a the learner, and then how learning happens, or to take a view on it. 
but at the same time there's all there's so many other elements of coaching so i would i just wouldn't disregard other elements above above and beyond yeah definitely and you it may be that you you use those you you watch that video you think that's absolutely fantastic but instead of sitting watching that video going hey right this is what we're doing tonight guys it's oh, do you know what actually that perfectly fits with this view that we're going to take of the way that we're going to coach the tackle long term because of identified needs within the team and we're going to use it here here and here for these reasons is it's quite a different sort of thought process isn't it that's what i suppose i'm trying to get to which is mm. uh, which is not always what I see, but it is funny. Like I said, right at the very beginning, I think it is interesting that when you do, it's amazing how much of this coaches do get right and how much they naturally do do. And they might state certain things, but then actually when you go and see their practice, actually you're like, okay, you know, you're, you're stating that you're very drill-based or you're very block-based, but when you actually go and see it, you'll, you'll see a lot of elements of, of random practice and play and that kind of thing. Uh, it's been absolutely fantastic once again. I can't help feeling that we've probably skimmed the surface and that we probably <laughs> need to keep going, keep diving deeper because everything that you said to me sparked so many thoughts. It was, I was sort of struggling to think of how I was going to take that and sort of move that on. Um, but uh, we, we did mention it in the first podcast, but if, if um, people want to contact you and sort of, find some more resources I, I will pull together some um some of the papers so uh we'll put them in the links things that might be of interest to people uh, around a lot of the things we talked about what would be a good way for people to sort of pick this up with you and, and continue the conversation yeah so either um twitter and i'm sure you can stick the the handle yeah, in. so it's j-a-t taylor and uh, i'm jamie at graymattersuk.com Perfect. Well, thanks ever so much. And I'm sure we'll pick this up again. Great. Cheers, Simon. Thank you.